This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And if this is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how did the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the truth back some of that voice to the, to the world. And I want you to to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? I don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now, these people are in very high positions, Jack. Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 13. I am your co-host, Dimitri. And I'm Khalid. And today, I guess in honor of reaching episode 13, it wouldn't really be subliminal jihad if we didn't stop and take notice at that very prominent number. Right. We both felt that we needed to recognize uh, episode 13 and to discuss the uh, the number itself and the significance of 13, uh, as, I mean, without even really thinking about it, I guess, we sort of reflexively recognize 13 as a significant number, um, Mm -hmm. in a way that one wouldn't of others, I guess, you know, maybe, um, yeah, I think that 13 is probably the most, like, reflexively significant number at least sure by in itself, our american least. culture maybe once yeah. we get up to like episode you know six if we six, do six episode six 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 yeah well, episode nine one one yeah but six 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 yeah that's gonna as be, far as a yeah. two-digit number and it did cross my mind yeah. i think when we did episode six episode seven episode nine episode eleven yeah. but well, none of those numbers yeah, you're mm-hmm. definitely attuned to number symbolism. Like, uh, you should tell your nine story. Um, sure. I feel like this is the episode for that, maybe. Um, yeah, this is going to be about mostly about 13, but also kind of numerology and the symbolic, uh, the mystical symbolic significance yeah. of numbers I mean, in general. Um, it won't be the last time we talk about numerology, just because, like, for one, numbers are one of the most elemental symbols like uh that exist like they're very similar to letters in that respect and they're Mm -hmm. like the idea of number symbolism and significant numbers is a huge theme in esotericism and in sort of conspiracy theories which are two of the major themes of the podcast so Mm -hmm. it's definitely a theme that runs through and obviously like even as we talked about on like the last episode on our last awara episode about bitcoin and just the internet in general, that this is kind yeah. of like a magical system that is based upon cryptology and mathematics and computer programming, which kind of functions in a way similar to spells. Yeah. Except in the material world, but then it kind of creates this spiritual dimension out of the materiality. It, 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 there's a lot yeah. there. 
The number um, has always been significant to any kind of magical operation or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. For sure. So, I feel like so, if you look through our catalog, like, you know, in our SK Bane 9-11 episode, there's references to it with the significance of 11. It's a big theme, but, you know, now, yeah, we're focusing mostly on 13. But I just think... Mm-hmm since it's a it's a laser focused episode on this kind of uh number significance topic you should tell your your nine story sure Um, sure we'll see what people think yeah yeah yeah. because i don't know what it was it was probably it was something to do with probably something i heard on some conspiracy podcast back i want to say in 2016 this is when i started to like notice it but by then i was already attuned to kind of the significance of like seven and six 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 and things of that nature and i forget what turned me on to the number nine but then i started like paying a little more attention to it because nine is kind of an interesting number in that it's the highest value single digit number you know, mm-hmm. in existence. Um, yeah. And it's also the inverse of six, which I think uh, certain esotericists um, basically, you know, have, have used in the years. And I think at one point, um, I know I discovered almost like the, the Buffalo Club that we discussed last episode. I discovered like a weird network of Twitter accounts that seemed to be involved in some kind of like dark esoteric cult. I forget how I stumbled upon it. But um, it was the, there was like a locked account called like nine 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 command, and <laughs> it was all these people that were I mean it was very kind of like larpy cosplay like ooh magical demons and uh, mm-hmm. things like that, but um, I I want I'm trying to remember the name there was like a sort of goddess dominatrix account yeah. that everybody followed and worshipped and all of these people. And they used just a lot of like cartoonish, but kind of like scary iconography. It felt a little uh, 09 angles, uh, order of nine mm-hmm. angles, which uh, yeah, is, she was is, like a is coming dom, up soon. Kind of. Yeah, she was like kind of a fin dom, and they like were like priestess. Kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's killing me. Maybe I'll put in the show notes if I can like remember her name. It's like on the tip of my tongue. But a lot of these accounts were locked, and then there were like unlocked accounts that were kind of worshiping them, and they all use this like 999 numbers. So it, it kind of sent me off on this thing, uh, researching nine a little more. And then the spookiest thing. I think that happened to me was uh, on the the night of my birthday, um, and when I turned twenty nine, I was walking around with somebody in Koreatown, leaving a restaurant, and suddenly we came across this like deck of playing cards that had been discarded on the sidewalk, and. <clears throat> Um, they were all face down cards and uh, I don't know what came over me. I kind of thought like, Oh, that's interesting. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll like flip over one of these cards out of curiosity. And I flipped it over and it was a nine and I thought, huh, oh, okay. It's a nine. And then I flipped over another one and it was a nine. I flipped over another one. It was a nine. So then I scooped all these cards up and it was an entire deck of only the nine cards out of a deck of playing cards. It was like every suit and you know whatever of nine basically um and uh i think i still have it somewhere to this day i don't think i ever threw it out yeah but that was like a stack of four nines or was it like 
two sets of nines or Actually, something like no, that. it was more cards than yeah, it was just four. Decks so of it cards. was like multiple decks of cards. It was almost like an entire deck of cards, like 52 or however many there are, that were just all nines uh, of, of the four different suits. And so that was kind of like weird. And I remember looking up and I think, um, I don't know, it might have been, I, I remember looking up outside of the place where it was dropped and there was a sign above the door and it said AA. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh my God. No. <laughs> uh, I knew at that point. Um, but then I noticed later, I think that same summer, there were a lot of storefronts that had this sort of hand painted AA thing with like a circle around it. And I realized that that was usually the symbol for alcoholics anonymous but like oh. spanish but like spanish-speaking groups of uh of alcoholics anonymous so i i saw it in other parts of la too like the aa sign and um and so i don't know maybe just a coincidence but then i started looking into uh now i've never been a math person so i was like totally yeah. out of my depth here but i think i was driving around and i just started doing math in my head and I noticed that there's at least one bizarre thing about nine. And I, I mm -hmm. like, I'm, like I said, out of my depth to really gauge the total significance of this. But I noticed that if you're doing the normal numerology, um, I guess the kind of Hebrew numerology of like adding, I guess that has to do with numerical values of letters. But just the traditional approach to numerology where you add up all the numbers in a sequence of numbers to, and then reduce them down to like one digit. Um, I noticed that if you divided any number in the entire universe by the number nine, the number that you would, or at least any whole number by nine, the, um, the result of that, if you added up all the digits in the result, it would always reduce to nine. So if you yeah. just think like an easy example, like nine times six equals 54, five plus four equals nine, nine times right. eight equals 72, seven plus two equals nine. It's like, even if you go to like, uh, let me just type in something real quick, like nine times 4,567, two, four, four. Um, uh, let's see, that is 41,105,196. So that's five. 6, 11, 16, 25. Actually, did I just ruin my own theory here? Um, no, because it will work, but what you'll end up with is a number that will itself be divisible by 9. You won't get 9, or that's right, you'll that's get right. You're, a number you're right. that then, you know, so it recurs to the point Yeah, yeah, so just like a smaller one, like yeah. like 9 times 333 3, 3 is 2997, so 11 plus, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think... Um, Two nine, so yeah, 18 plus 9, so that's three nines. Uh, so then it will be, yeah, 27, which is divisible by 9. So you'll always get a number that that's is right. itself that's divisible right. by 9, or you'll get 9 itself. Yeah, that's a, yeah. an interesting and curious property of 9, which is the reason why 9 is also one of those numbers not as popular like uh, in the present day sort of general zeitgeist as 13, um, but definitely one that's been assigned some significance uh, in the past, more so than numbers like, I don't know, like, uh, I mean... A lot of numbers have five definitely get some attention. Um, yeah, and, and it, it differs know, across yeah. cultures. I remember people telling me that, you know, I think um, one of our friends who is like from the Philippines, like uh, uh, I was explaining the significant, there's all this nine stuff to her. And she was saying, oh, well, like in Asia, in a lot of Asian countries, 
um, there's a strong belief in numbers being either sinister or lucky to the point where people will pay thousands of dollars to get a vanity license plate in China that's like all nines or something. (laughs) It's like nine, 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 nine. And actually, occasionally, if you drive around like Koreatown and stuff, um, or uh, some more like, you know, um, like heavily Chinese parts of Los Angeles, you sometimes will see like, like a, a car it's like seven 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 or something like That's that interesting. And, uh, yeah, yeah and i guess you know four i forget if four or five is a number that signifies death and is considered unlucky yeah it's interesting because there's even with 13 which i guess uh we should get back to as a topic of our episode there's definitely like the idea of 13 is being unlucky uh the one that really stands out to us especially like the association with friday is relatively new like uh there is kind of a lot of people like at least in the european sort of tradition people trace it back to like norse mythology where there was sort of this idea of loki uh being the 13th guest at uh dinner and uh something uh ill-fated uh kind of happened at that dinner uh Mm. as you know as a as a result of of his attendance because he's you know obviously this sort of trickster uh being um but you know it's also popularly associated with the last supper you know there being 13 guests at the last supper and that type of thing but i think it was really like heavily popularized like more recently like in the 18th or uh century or even you know maybe like the 17th yeah. century people started and to it, really it's also it's also worth yeah. mentioning that i guess the the popular lineage at least in european traditions that it's traced back to is something that we discussed before i think in episode two particularly um and that is the um the persecution of the knights templar and yeah. the death sentence of jacques de molay the, yeah. the grandmaster of that order and i guess relates to a curse slash prophecy that he yelled out as he was being burned at the stake outside of the Notre Dame Cathedral that accused the king of, um, was it Philip IV? Yeah, Philip the Fair. Philip the Fair, yeah. Yeah, Philip the Fair and the Prime Minister of France and Pope Clement V. And he said that, like, within a year, you will be called to the court of God to, like, stand trial for your transgressions against me. And that your families, your bloodlines will be cursed for 13 generations. Hmm. I never and actually heard that he pronounced a curse. I've heard that. I'm not that's sure. That's what the Swedish it, guy yeah. that you linked to says. Yeah, um, yeah. That was a uh, Mason. Um, I, yeah, I didn't remember his mention of the curse. Yeah, that's like a Masonic yeah, explanation well, here, of the Here, I can just, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, if you want me to read just like the literal thing, um, according yeah, to this sure. guy, Tor Akason, who is a Freemason from Sweden. For some reason, this is on the MIT website. Yeah, very weird. Yeah, he, um, he said, here you see innocent people die. Then he turned toward his three present executioners with the following cry of prophecy, compare with the first epistle of Corinthians 14.1. Uh, he says, 14-1, I am calling you King Philip IV of France. I'm calling you Pope Clements V. I'm calling you Prime Minister Guillaume de Nogaret to appear within one year from today at the court of God in order to receive your legitimated penalty. Curse curse be all of you cursed until your 13th generation then he fell down in the ashes and the red hot coal of the stake with his forefinger upright to the heaven of god um interesting isis mm. um <laughs> and um the arm and the hand with the upright we forefinger. all like to do that uh, i guess yeah uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, the arm and the hand with the, forefight, the upright forefinger stayed in this position. The Parisians mm. thought that this prediction was also valid for them, and therefore the fear for number 13 and Friday the 13th started to expand out over the world. Um, but the prediction did not concern the innocent Parisians or other human beings, uh, rather than the three judges and their families. And, you know, I mean, say what you want, but uh, King Philip IV fell off his horse and died before the end of the year. Mm. The Pope got an intestinal obstruction and died before the end of the year. And the Prime Minister hung himself before the end of the year. And according to this guy, their three families were reported to have lived in misery ever since. And he also says, kind of ominously, our generation can be regarded as the 13th. So, uh, I don't know, it was like the curse, I assume this is written in the last maybe 30 or 40 years, so does that mean that um, yeah. the, the, the curse is lifted? Like, I, I don't know. Um, I've heard, I looked into this, and I am not sure, like, if this whole idea is something that, it was definitely, like, uh, cited in the Da Vinci Code and books like that. I'm not sure if there actually is, like, evidence of this whole connection between Friday the 13th and the Templars before, like, the 20th century. So I'm not actually 100% sure where it even comes from and i've also heard varying accounts on this guy is very much like you know uh sort of offering a masonic explanation of the significance of 13 and uh you know with the masonic link to the templars and sort of uh suggesting that there is like a masonic link to 13 and there are many masons who will uphold that idea but of course because 13 is sort of seen as being a sinister number uh, there are a lot of Masons also who will say, like, no, like, we don't care about, you know, 13 doesn't have anything to do with Masonry, there's no Masonic link to 13, you know, trying to sort of repudiate a lot of conspiracy theories about, uh, the use of 13 and the kind of American iconography, like, the, the flag and all that stuff and the connection between that and Masonry. So there's a lot of, like, different, uh, like, views that are, that Masons will espouse about this, uh, a lot of, uh, obscuritanism when it comes to 13. Well, I mean, um, yeah. it, it, it's it's worth mentioning that the flag of of our our home country, yeah, you know, started out with thirteen stripes and thirteen colonies, and yeah, thirteen um, stars, thirteen stripes. And... Yes, and I've I found a, a kind of interesting, like a very old web article from MasterMason.com that mm -hmm. I think was posted right after nine eleven. And it's called Masons and U.S. Flag. And the uh, <laughs> quote, it's not sourced, but the, the quote at the top says uh, a last word. Take a, good look, take a good look at that American flag, brethren. It's got more masonry in it than you may know. And uh, it was written by Andrew Baracci uh, for American Mason Magazine. And um, he explains that, um, uh, you know, like basically... On January 1st, uh, 1776, General and Brother George Washington, after, after having achieved a semblance of military order with a limited number of troops, proclaimed the formation of the Continental Army at his headquarters. There he hoisted the Grand Union flag on a 70-foot mast in defiance of the British who were watching from Boston, but the flag too closely resembled the British flag. The enemy sneered. An angry Brother Washington, while still in the field, sketched the idea of the stars and stripes on the back of an envelope. It was a mason. Brother Francis Hopkinson, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, who really designed what the legendary Betsy Ross then cut and sewed into America's first flag. The following year, on June 14, 1777, 777, the Continental Congress approved the Stars and Stripes as a symbol of our new freedom and independence. The 13 stars on a blue field defiantly replaced the British flag. 
After that, Masonic glory accompanied the stars and stripes on America's journey to growth and glory. Um, so Wow, so the U.S. flag wasn't actually designed by Betsy Ross? It was designed by to that guy, anyway. Mason Francis Hopkinson, who gave the design to Betsy Ross, who made... So, you know, she she quilted it, but I guess, yeah, it was... I, I mean, I feel like we always learned in school that she came up with the design yeah. for it. And I don't know, maybe they're stealing valor from Betsy Ross. Um, mm. But... Uh, well, maybe Betsy Ross stole valor from that guy. Uh, who yeah, was, what or, was his name? The Masonic uh, author of the or the for, Masonic uh, Francis play? Hopkinson, who was a signer Francis of uh, the. He was a, a judge. Um, he was a founding father, though he he died in 1791. Wow, he does he designed Continental Paper Money, the first U.S. coin, and two early versions of the flag, one for the United States and one for the U.S. Navy interesting yeah well and, i mean obviously the great seal of the united states has 13 recurring many times like the eagle has 13 arrows in its talon and it had the olive branch oh. has 13 olives on it uh as well and i think that the pyramid in annuit coeptis like the you know the all the famous all-seeing eye icon i think that has 13 layers like 13 mm. le- leveled pyramid and, I mean, of course, E Pluribus Unum, if I'm not mistaken, has 13 letters. If I'm wrong about that, someone is going to be like, well, they can't count this subliminal jihad, but, like, you know, uh, whatever. You can well, verify just, for yourself, but I'm pretty sure it does. Yeah, e ju- just pl- for the, uh, the, the edification of everybody to, you know, to clear this up, um, it, it does say on Wikipedia that Francis Hopkinson of New Jersey designed the 1777 flag when he was chairman of the Continental Navy Board's middle department, um, mm. and that the uh, the origin of the Stars and Stripes design has been muddled by a story disseminated by the descendants of Betsy Ross. The apocryphal wow. story credits Betsy Ross for sewing one of the first flags from a pencil sketch handed to her by George Washington. No evidence for this exists either in the diaries of George Washington or in the records of the Continental Congress. N- indeed, nearly a century passed before Ross's grandson, William Canby, first publicly suggested the story in 1870. By her family's own admission, Ross ran an upholstery business, and she had never made a flag as of the supposed visit on June 1776. Furthermore, <laughs> her grandson admitted that his own search throughout the journals of Congress and other official records failed to find corroborating evidence for his wow, grandmother's this rules story. because there's like a lot of like bullshit stories like that, like the first Thanksgiving, stuff like that. Uh-huh. Like, but I yeah. genuinely went through my whole life up until now believing that bullshit story about Betsy Ross. Um, I did too. I did too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, anyway, yeah, we just had a major breakthrough on Swimble Oh, and uh-oh, I, I think um, this is even more problematic. The family of Rebecca Young claimed that she sewed the first flag. Didn't didn't lie and say that she invented it, but, but she mm-hmm. sewed it. Young's daughter was Mary Pickersgill, who made the Star Spangled Banner flag, and she was assisted by Grace Wisher, an African-American girl at just 13 years old. So wow. stealing valor from Rebecca Young, stealing valor from 13 years POC, old. Grace Wisher. Uh, what a great metaphor for America, right? Like stealing mm, the labor yeah. of a 13-year-old African-American girl to mm. um, get famous off something you didn't do. Um, wow. 
and wow. actually all to mask a masonic plot <laughs> yeah uh um. yeah so anyway yeah so there's uh i do want to read some stuff from a uh book from the 20th century that deals with uh 13 uh that's written by uh sort of a masonic uh figure uh under a pseudonym but uh, people speculate that it's a as raleigh but uh is, first, it, is that think, raleigh of like the city raleigh fame i no, it's not the same uh guy who raleigh north carolina is named after um but it was a major like figure in masonry in the 20th century um he wrote like a lot of books on masonry uh, under his own name and he wrote this book uh esoteric masonry or the storehouse unlocked uh under the name of Philotus, uh which i'll read later because i think First, it might be interesting to talk about, like, the sort of theoretical interest in this topic. I think that it's interesting on many levels because a lot of these sort of number beliefs, and of course, you know, there's many angles to take on it, many angles to take on just 13 itself, but a lot of these number beliefs that people have, like the idea of unlucky 13, stuff like that, they're reflexive beliefs that aren't necessarily backed up by any kind of, like, cosmological system. They're just like this sort of like they're kind of things like knock on wood, you know, like no one can mm -hmm. ever if you ask them. Uh, and I, I read kind of an essay on this. It was a kind of a lame book. It's like called Towards a Science of Belief Systems. I thought like it was kind of a cringy book in many ways. But uh, the author uh, Griffiths, uh, what is his full name? Edmund Griffiths. Mm -hmm. uh, he did uh, do a chapter called like a theory of superstition in 13 paragraphs. And he made a good point, which is that if someone uh you know knocks on wood most of the time they can't explain to you like the metaphysical justification behind why they should knock on wood like they're not going to be like oh well there's a spirit inside the wood that like i'm supplicating so that it will grant my wish or like prevent this jinx or whatever or you know one can really offer some kind of paradigm or framework why they have these kind of like superstitions or why like a black cat should be unlucky you know mm -hmm. there's no etiology of these types of things yeah. um and that's something that i think is interesting another interesting aspect of it is the idea of numbers is very like very like primordial kind of uh philosophical idea like uh it's often traced back to uh like pythagoreanism and pythagoras you know mm -hmm. i read a little bit about pythagoras in preparing for this it actually turns out that pythagoras himself didn't really have much to do with mathematics. Uh, he may have introduced some mathematical ideas, but it was really his sort of successors and uh, people in the sort of Pythagorean tradition who were more mathematicians. And he was mm -hmm. more of like an ethical figure uh, who espoused vegetarianism and the idea of transmigration of souls and stuff like that. Uh, okay, so he but, was like a new age influencer. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was a huge influencer, and, like, his uh, successors, like, the big famous Pythagorean ideas of, like, the the famous quote of, like, all is a number, you know, that mm -hmm. is not really something that, I mean, maybe those ideas kind of originate with Pythagoras, they must in some way, uh, but that and the idea of the music of the spheres, uh, Pythagoras is kind of like Socrates in that he didn't actually write anything himself, so, like, a lot of these mathematical ideas come from later people, um, mm -hmm. but he definitely introduced the idea that all is number or, you know, his associated with the idea, they introduced the idea that all is number uh, and Aristotle kind of popularized them as associated with this notion that like numbers are the basic way. I came across a good quote that kind of sums it up 
about uh, Philo Laos, not to be confused with Philotus, the pseudonym that Raleigh wrote under, which uh, I do want to talk about, but later. Um, it's, uh, it kind of sums up this guy who's really influential uh, as a Pythagorean. Kind of, I think he was the first Pythagorean to actually write a book. Um, mm -hmm. but he says, uh, or this, uh, encyclopedia of philosophy, which I'm told is reliable on these subjects, uh, the Stanford encyclopedia of philosophy. Well, Stanford encyclopedia, they would know about anything sus, but anyway, uh, mm -hmm. Philolas, uh, Philolaos, uh, argues that the cosmos and everything in it are made up of two basic types of things, limiteds, limiteds and unlimiteds. Unlimiteds are continua, unidentified by any structure or quantity. They include the traditional pre-Socratic material elements, such as earth, air, fire, and water, but also space and time. Limiters set limits in such unlimiteds and include shapes and other structural principles. Limiters and unlimiteds are not combined in a haphazard way, but are subject to a fitting together or harmonia, which can be described mathematically. Philolaus's primary example of such a harmonia of limiters and unlimiteds is a musical scale, in which the continuum of sound is limited according to the whole number ratios, uh, so that the octave, fifth, and fourth are defined uh, by the ratios 2 to 1, 3 to 2, and 4 to 3 respectively. Since the whole world is structured according to number, we only gain knowledge of the world insofar as we grasp these numbers. That's the key kind of quote. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, the whole world is structured according to number, so we only gain knowledge of the world insofar as we grasp these numbers. The cosmos comes to be when unlimited fire is fitted together with the center of the cosmic sphere, a limiter, to become the central fire. So that next sentence is like totally arcane and has nothing to do with what people tend to think now. But the idea that the world is structured according to numbers and that we only gain knowledge of the world insofar as we grasp the numbers is pretty mainstream, like, you know, I fucking love science type idea. Uh, yeah, yeah, much. no, it, like it, that, it seems you know. almost self-evident nowadays that, yeah. yes, like, I mean, or at least, I don't know, like, our ability to comprehend the dynamics of the natural world, numbers are critical to being able to, you know, calculate uh, physics and like, you know, I mean like all of the yeah. aspects of our, our universe, like enable to really categorize it and pin it down. Um, there's this kind of, uh, it, it's almost like it's the source code. I'm almost seeing it in a parallel to like the internet where if like you use the internet, you're not aware of like all the coding that's happening underneath the surface. But if you want to yeah. know how it happens, you have to understand these kind of mathematical, um, and like programming, languages and things like that yeah which is all kind of yeah and it is all based on numbers and it is all mathematical so i find that uh interesting as well like the idea of this kind of mathematical framework of reality that's so widely accepted but the legacy of it i mean if you go back to like what these people actually wrote about like they are very much like esoteric thinkers who believe in all sorts of things like metempsychosis stuff like that but uh the basic notion and people still you know revere pythagoras we still learn the idea of the pythagorean theorem uh mm -hmm. it's you know very uh interesting how like this basic principle of the world is being structured according to numbers um and yeah i can't really think of like i mean obviously they are like critically important uh there was recently that big debate on twitter about like uh, two plus two equaling four and like you know whether you define your axiom sort of differently like in two plus two equals something else like in different types of higher math and things like that and there are people getting angry like and saying like no you're destroying western civilization by saying you know <laughs> or, or stuff like that uh, what, yeah, what is but, the argument that two plus two doesn't equal four 
I think I'm also not like a super big math person, uh, mm. but I think that like in other forms of higher math, like, you know, obviously there can be different axioms where like the rules of math aren't the same rules as basic arithmetic. Okay. So they can be, it can be something else. Like, uh, I mean, it's basically just sort of changing what the symbols mean, like, yeah. or, you know, or changing the like the axioms. No it's like saying two. Yeah. Then... Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's like saying that, like, you know, uh, va plus va equals uh, chatiri or something, you know, not like, <laughs> yeah. uh, like, but um, anyway, so uh, yeah, it's like kind of semantic in a way, but I don't know. Like, I think that it became like some kind of culture war type of thing where people were perceiving like animus on both sides towards like some kind of a sacred situation but anyway yeah so uh this obviously is still like very much charged and the idea of these basic mathematical principles underwriting everything uh you know is uh, like uh, very is held like very very dear and sacred um and it's like very much something that's like widely disseminated i read another thing by like uh, a guy eric et bell i guess eric t bell Mm -hmm. uh who wrote on numerology i guess in the 20th century 1933 he published his book titled numerology um and you know he talks it's kind of like a little po interesting pop science book he writes about um you know it's kind of like a pop history of science too and he talks about the popularity of numerology in hollywood and the sort of grift of numerology that uh, people would apply at the time um, but he talks about how, uh, you know, and this is like kind of the era when Albert Einstein was like a celebrity and everything. So, mm. uh, he talks about how like, uh, the world is kind of, tr uh, he sort of documents the change in the world that's sort of taking place where the idea of math and science becomes something that's of relevance to, um, every, uh, to like all people, you know, mm -hmm. um, like, uh, I'm trying to find like the, uh, like key, sort of line where uh he sort of says this but uh i i, I yeah. just see you quoted this one line here that i like where he says although numbers cannot lie they have a positive genius for telling the truth with intention to deceive yes i think that <laughs> i do uh, yeah that's the first a, as a not book, math person i support this sentiment uh yes. that all you math nerds are just being lied to uh you're psyoping yourselves um, yeah well i definitely think that I mean, uh really, but <laughs> well i definitely think that there is like something to be said for like the critique of scientific impartiality i mean you know it's hard to assail like quote-unquote pure math Sure. But I would imagine but, that it is subject to the same, like, you know, a lot of the time, the models that you design, uh, many ways determine the results that you get. Well, exactly. Uh, to quote so, the total, to quote the total cliche, there's lies, there's damn lies, and then there's statistics. Yeah. So it's a, it's a um, commonly accepted thing that, um, and I think it's something that maybe the, uh, the, the um, adherents of, like, secular scientism today are unfortunately maybe uh losing their edge in terms of being skeptical of like like you said like we believe in science you know as a yeah. kind of just like almost as a replacement for religion yes, um, exactly. as a dogma and it's like uh you can manipulate science pretty well i mean you can massage thing you know there's the um what do they call that right now um 
the like the reproducibility crisis in a lot of yes. academic research it, well, especially where... in like anthropology or yeah well i guess the reproducible i was thinking the crisis representation but uh, yeah that there's too. also a reproducibility uh, but yeah but yeah. but making these yeah. assertions like these psychological studies or medical trials and things like that and then not other people basically not being able to replicate them which i think um you're you're the academic so i don't know you can tell me but yeah um, i guess wasn't as used to be taken more seriously than it is taken today now it's Mm -hmm. like oh we got one thing like even if let's get it peer-reviewed and even if nobody else can reproduce these results which you know definitely brings up important questions of like the efficacy of that study or the accuracy of it um whatever it's you know it has been sanctified by the temple of science and yeah we must believe it i am an academic but not really in stem uh so sure. basically our doctrine in the humanities is yeah like stem is bullshit and like they're just as like qualitative as uh our work is and their pretense of being more quantitative is uh you know just that but Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I think someone who actually is in STEM would be able to say more, but what I listen to them, they tend to be annoying. I mean, I'm sure some of them are cool, but, uh, you know, I know some of them are cool, but a lot of them yeah, are, uh, yeah. indoctrinated in the idea of like positivism, uh, and, you know, like, uh, not down with, uh, the subliminal jihad or the woke satanic panic, uh, and all the no. other things that we promote here. But, yeah. uh, yeah, this, this is the quote that I was referring to and this kind of, uh, uh, notes sort of what you just said uh, it's called it actually calls it very interestingly a modern miracle um, mm. and he says uh, to most scientists one of the gratifying things of recent years is the avid popular interest in science which has swept the world since the great war there has been nothing approaching it since those heroic squabbles in the infancy of evolution again evolution the super critical important uh, pivotal mm-hmm. uh, power of this when even dignified English bishops so far forgot their holy office as to lay out or try to lay out the saints of Darwinism. All this adds to the joy of life, whether one be pro-science or anti-science. Only an occasional scientist now and then gets fed up with too much appreciative publicity of himself or his work and wishes the world would leave him some time to dream. But Einstein is in the minority. Possibly he is the minority itself. For our present purposes, this eager appreciation of science is all to the good. It relieves any mere mathematician who is trying to describe scientific numerology from the necessity of explaining what electrons, protons, neutrons, Planck's constant, and quanta are, to say nothing of photons and Boltzmann's constant. These physical terms have passed into common language and are well understood by everyone, except possibly a confirmed mathematician. But mathematicians are notoriously thick when it comes to common things, and their failure to comprehend what others understand can be ignored. Uh, so, you know, he's just kind of making a joke about himself in this book and how he doesn't really understand science and he's more of a pure mathematician. But, uh, uh, the idea basically is that he, within the, like his own memory after World War One, there's this huge explosion in popular knowledge of science and appreciation of science as kind of, as you said, like a new, like kind of civic faith, um, mm-hmm. the, you know, tenets of belief that people have basic knowledge of. Um, which, you know, people in the past, you know, uh, wouldn't necessarily have uh, been so familiar with the fundamental properties of numbers uh, organizing, uh, the idea of numbers organizing reality. That might have been more of an esoteric uh, idea. Mm-hmm. Um, or a, priest, a priestly class kind of thing that was not shared with the commoners. Yeah, in fact, And of I think course, that... like, with with mass illiteracy of the majority of every population, there's not much of an opportunity to learn about 
kind of these yeah. deeper things, right? In fact, I think that some mathematical ideas, like the idea of like non-rational numbers, like uh, were like just actively kept secret as much as possible. Um, like the idea that if you uh, like certain numbers, you can't, uh, or maybe it was imaginary numbers, something like that. You know, certain aspects of uh, the math that we learn in high school, like were considered to be secret. Um, that potentially you can't, like, dangerous. Get uh yeah or potentially yeah potentially undermining uh the holistic uh like harmony of math or something you know I potentially see. dangerous to uh the integrity of the mathematical doctrine that uh you know people might have had at one time like in these certain uh sects like uh, pythagorean or neo-pythagorean orders bad luck wind been blowing at my back I was born to bring trouble to wherever I'm at Got the number 13 tattooed on my neck When the ink starts to itch then the black will turn to red I was born in the soul of misery Never had me a name they just call me the number when I was young. Another uh, interesting aspect, I think, of 13. Well, 13 is like a number, and this kind of relates to what we're saying in terms of the, uh, you know, non-cultural kind of, you know, this is sort of the thing with the debate that happens between STEM and the humanities, where mm -hmm. uh, the humanities is very, you know, interested in the things of humanity. Whereas uh, a lot of the time, the idea with science and math is that uh, take humanity out, like all these principles still apply. You know, our mm -hmm. processing of it isn't relevant. Like whether human beings existed or not, like gravity would still be a thing that is determined by certain like, you know, by Planck's constant and, and mathematical rules, you know. I sure, hope that I'm sure. referring to Planck's constant properly. That is a gravity thing, uh, but I think it is, yeah. Um, I'll take your word for it. Um, uh, it's, I no, think... a photon's energy frequency, so I'm thinking of something else. But anyway, okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, people still haven't, like, you know, these numbers will still matter, uh, The like, you know, the speed and of gravity. I, or I do point, appreciate the um, kind of materialist grounding of that. Um, yeah. But then, then at the same time, you immediately have to think about all these very out there experiments in like quantum physics where they've and and who knows to what extent this is, you know, uh, affected by like the reproducibility crisis. But the idea that, you know, they, they found like some experimental evidence that things behave differently. Um, I was just reading something the other day about um, whether I guess like a something about you know a particle whether it, it it expresses itself as a wave or something else and how kind of like the schrodinger's cat uh a hypothesis was kind of upheld by at least one of these experiments and that like the observation of reality affects it in some way and i think you know without getting into the weeds of the high theoretical physics of that just thinking about how the 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 it's hard to, to fully divorce our human perception, even from these like STEM subjects. So the idea that that somehow these scientists, by virtue of their education and their expertise, are kind of like disinterested, like God observers of the mm -hmm. universe, and um, 
and perhaps that they're not bringing in, they're not uh, aware of certain biases that are rooted, deeply rooted in like humans' ability to comprehend or perceive things. Um, that often doesn't get spotlighted in the STEM field, right? I mean, yeah, it's I will very think much... that. Yeah, there's less emphasis on it. And what I find interesting about the case of 13 and its significance is that, like, it is on the border between this sort of thing where are certain things kind of naturally given or, or are they cultural, you know? It's a pan-cultural thing, you know? It's something that people... It gets into that sort of territory where people start ascribing stuff to ancient aliens, you know? Like, all oh, these different cultures have pyramids or whatever, you know? How yeah. does... There's or, one, gi- or giants. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, that like, it's the idea is like, oh, well, did people independently come up with giants? Or is there something inherently at least appealing about the idea of giants? Or are there real giants? You know, like, uh, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Uh, the like, uh, there's one good essay about 13 that I found on Scribd uh, by Tok Thompson, which is like a deep dive into 13 in particular uh, called The 13th Number. Um, and he talks about the, the movie, the 13th warrior is kind of his way oh, into the yeah. stuff, but he talks that, about, I had to watch yeah. that in history class in high school. I have no yeah. idea why. Uh, well, it's interesting. <laughs> we had to learn it, about it, Islam even, or something. Yeah. In world even history. Thadlan, like as a real guy, I've actually read his history and it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, more wild probably than the movie, the 13th warrior or the book. But anyway, yeah, I guess he, uh, is sort of talking about the reason that the, the number is using the title or, uh. So, but he talks like transculturally about different traditions around 13. Like he does make a note of the old idea of the sort of early Norse uh, dinner party. Um, it's called Loki's Quarrel. Uh, dinner party set for 12 gods. The trickster god Loki attends uninvited, proceeds to cause trouble, precipitating the death of the beloved god Balder. Um, you know, he talks about whether it's actually the case that, uh, you know, 13 was the actual number of guests in uh, Snorri's prose edda. Again, I'm not like a Norse uh, person, so, uh, or not just not Norse, uh, you know, ethnically or like in terms of what I uh, study or know about. So Mm -hmm. forgive me if I got any of those names wrong. But yeah, so, but he talks about that as a main idea in European folklore. He also talks about uh, it's a huge thing in the Mesoamerican and uh, Aztec in particular tradition. 13 is like a, a highly valued sacred number and he uh makes a lot of uh points about this uh i guess the aztecs had two calendars uh one civil calendar based on uh 365 days and a 260 day ca- uh, year based on the venus cycle which was their ritual calendar although i guess their civil calendar had actually 360 days and then five days which were considered to be nothingness um wow. and uh his 13 was very important then but it's interesting because his theory, at least the author's theory, uh, for the reason why 13 is so transculturally significant, or at yeah. least the one that he first proposes, is that it has to do with the syncing up of solar year with the lunar year. Yeah. You know, a lunar rotation is like uh, 29.54 days, and a solar year is 365.24 days. So if you try to like divide them, you're going to end up with just a little bit less than 13 and more than 12 Basically, t- a 12.41 lunations per solar year. Yeah. And yeah, he says, hence, cultures with a lunar solar calendar are forced to reckon with an odd 13th month every year. And this month is, in this hypothesis, what is given the number 13, its unique and widespread cultural properties, particularly as a kind of um, a sinister connotation. Yeah. 
but what's interesting about the Aztec example is that it's they're not relying on the magic number 13 as a solar lunar corrected device, as you would expect, um, but it's actually an integral part of their complex sacred calendar system. He writes, uh, the calendar system of the Aztecs built largely on the accomplishments of their predecessors, particularly the Maya. The Maya calendar calculated 11,958 days per 405 months, giving a lunar value of 29.5592 uh, days, just seven minutes short of modern calculations. It's amazing how good they were at astronomy, but anyway. Mm -hmm. They also kept track of the lunations in their calendar, uh, although Avani notes their system is markedly different from that proposed for the megalithic people of Great Britain, since the Maya seemed to have had no interest in the extremes of the lunar cycle. Certainly, the Aztec calendar was a culmination of complex calendrical achievements, and 13 was one of their most potently symbolic numbers in that tradition, often occurring in the familiar 12 plus 1 pattern. That's the thing with, you know, all these traditions of 13. We talked about the Last Supper, uh, stuff like that. We'll obviously talk more about it. Like, uh, 12 is, you know, we talk about even 12 Shiism, you know, the 12 yeah. imams. Uh, the 12, 12 apostles. Is, yeah, 12 is like a widely held sacred number. So thir 12, 13 is often seen as being 12 plus 1, you know. Mm -hmm. um, which which I, I don't know, it's like Jesus or maybe yeah. like the Imam coming out of Occultation. Yeah, actually, or... when we do get to Philotus, he does associate 13 uh, with Jesus, but in a very interesting way. Uh, but okay. I, I want to hold on to that uh, for a little bit. But anyway, Thompson talks kind of about... Uh, I'm going to, like, uh, not do well in this. I meant to look up the pronunciation of his name before we started recording, but uh, it's Telaz Teodal. Uh, Telazau Teodal, uh, who's okay. the god of the 13-day period. Uh, that's spelled... I mean, obviously, like, this is just, like, one spelling. Uh, I'm sure it's not... Well, obviously, it's a Roman character, so it's not the, you know, indigenous Aztec spelling, but it's T-L-A-Z-A-O-T-E-O-T-L who's the mm -hmm. goddess of the 13-day period, and who is kind of like a, uh, interestingly, like a witch figure uh, who is associated with actually even having a broomstick. Um, mm. Yeah, which is interesting. It's a bundle of herbs she uses to sweep away dirt from huts and also sweep away evil from uh, the souls of men. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, so she's the goddess that's associated with this 13-day period. Um and, uh, yeah, she has 13 associated with her, like, in many ways. And there's also uh, a lot of occurrence in 13 in the Aztec cosmology. One of the interesting things, and this kind of goes back to the solar lunar cycle, another interesting one he talks about is uh, the sort of uh, Ojibwe, or the uh, Webeno uh, sort of tradition uh, involving, uh, I guess it's the Taloa of Northern California, specifically, um, who have mm -hmm. this idea. But they had a story that there used to be 15 moons, and uh, Coyote, uh, you know, very important, uh, just like Native American mythological figure who you always hear about, uh, mm -hmm. worried that uh, this was too many moons. I don't know why, what made him think that, but so he hid outside their, the sweat house of the moons and he attacked them as they emerged. So he killed two of the 15, but he only partially wounded a third, thus leaving 12 healthy moons and one wounded one. Um, and I find this, uh, obviously it's very evocative and interesting and it definitely goes back to this idea of like 12.41 cycles um you know with the sort of half wounded moon uh yeah. but also like the bloody death like it relates to the association between like 13 witchcraft the moon and like blood and like menstruation i've always even i have to say like the sort of cosmic force being a large coyote in the sky makes me think of connie's major which makes me think of Sirius. yeah well that's <laughs> interesting because you know might be there... a stretch but 
Well, there definitely is, like, I've definitely heard it proposed that the first calendar, like, why would people need to make a calendar to mark off, you know, the months and 30 days? Like, you know, I think I've definitely heard it proposed that the first calendar was a menstrual calendar. Um, Hmm. And there definitely is, like, a monthly regulation to, like, my GF has an app that's called, like, My Moon Time to keep track of her periods, you know? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, no, definitely. That's very, and and I think that that's, uh, I just heard on NPR the other day, there was some guy who just written a book about astrology and was talking about how you know the the sort of um the gendered appreciation of astrology and how even though in throughout most of history this was like almost an exclusively male domain because it was like court astrologers and things like yeah. that that nonetheless like it has this you know i think in modern times but it, it very reasonably why women might take to it more is because their bodies are literally impacted by the 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 lunar cycle or they sync up with the lunar cycle every single month so i mean yeah um yeah i feel like that that's you know that, that's something that that men don't um i mean they they notice like changes in the weather maybe they can see the tides go in and out but that's a little different from feeling your body ch- transform um yeah and have it synced up with like a celestial body so then it kind of opens the door a little bit to be like well what is venus doing to to me what is mars doing to us and all that They're stuff d- there definitely is at the risk of being problematic. Like, uh, there's a gender divide in the way that, like, magical practice manifests, you know? Like, uh, the way that men, like, perform magic, like, uh, is, I mean, like, the Crowleyan type of very, like, patriarchal, very, like, male-centered type of magic, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, mm-hmm. they, I mean, people might argue with me about that, but I would say that it's very much, like, I mean, Kenneth Anger would agree with me that it's very much, you know, uh, mm-hmm. male-centered. Uh, um, and, you know, yeah. they're, like, to this day, there's a certain, like, genre of witchcraft that definitely has a strong appeal to women more so than men. And, like, even in, like, the sort of witch, you know, in the same way that, like, there's pink razors, you know, that are for women, and there's blue razors that are for men, and they might be the exact same razor, but they're marketed differently in the sort of witch industrial complex. There's definitely, (laughs) like, a witchcraft for, you know, uh, the the witch commercial complex. There's definitely, like, a witchcraft, a women's witchcraft versus like the more extreme Uh, like lucian greaves like male (laughs) no for sure you usually see the kind of really like heavy metal satanic things be taken up by by men usually and i think there's probably all kinds of tangled sociological reasons why you know those things maybe code the way they do or why they gender code the way they do um but uh but yeah that that author also said that um uh what did he say I forgot. Give me a second. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, it's interesting because like this whole topic of like gender gets into like issues of like bioessentialism and things like that. Like you know, very hot button issues. Like you know, but that's basically the crux of the whole like number thing. You know, is there something like inherent to the cosmos and the relation uh, between humanity and the cosmos that is structuring these ideas? You know, are they not like you know these ideas aren't just arbitrary? Like, you know, where it's like uh, people are just making up like, you know, there's like culture is something that human beings just make up, whereas science is like verified, you know, like uh, yeah, this yeah. is like the intermediary part where uh, there's a connection between the two. Yeah, um, I actually I, yeah. I just remembered what I was going to say is that like this author pointed out that, you know, um, even though a lot of our written history and text 
from antiquity, you know, gives this evidence that it was mostly men in kind of high positions, you know, scribes and priests and stuff that, you know, that did most of the studying of astrology back in the day that there has been, of course, for like tens of thousands of years, like folk traditions in tribes and small communities. And that, he said, there's not a lot of like documentary evidence because a lot of it was based on oral tradition. But he said from what they've been able to tell is that like women did have a very prominent role. You know, there were the wise women in Mm -hmm. tribes and villages and things like that that did kind of, um, you know, practice... uh, you know, employ astrological knowledge and, of course, you know, we're like shamans and, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, and that's a thing because, like, most traditional societies definitely do have or tend to have, like, uh, a sharp gender division. Certainly the case in, like, a lot of traditional societies that are uh, in sort of the Islamic uh, milieu or the sort of under the umbrella of Islam. Like, uh, that's a problem where, like, a lot of the books that we have like especially the ones that are published popularly are like from a very patriarchal uh intellectual world uh but there definitely were uh female sort of led traditions but a lot of time they're very separate and a lot of time the concerns of them and what they're like directed towards and the uh, what the priorities are are different so that uh yeah but um you know it can uh it can vary i think that's a good sort of segue to another like big uh thing related to 13 which is uh the sort of witch coven idea uh maybe before segueing uh you know talk thompson does also kind of note the significance of 13 and sort of tibetan and mongolian traditions but yeah. i don't know how deep we will get into that but just you we, know, we can touch on that because I, I read the other essay that you linked about oh that, yeah that was a couple kind of, of yeah yeah, we can uh, get to that in a little bit because I think there's a, yeah. there's a couple interesting things yeah, in there. Yeah, if you have some good notes. But yeah, I think that it's interesting to talk about uh, Margaret Murray's essay. I don't know mm-hmm. if you got to read that about Witches of the Number 13. She is, and I feel like this essay, like, or dealing with this kind of foreshadows maybe some of the stuff we'll do later on. Like when, I guess for, for LR subscribers and hopefully, you know, uh, future Alwara subscribers you know there's some good content coming out uh there now you know so this maybe foreshadows future stuff we'll do there uh mm-hmm. an episode that we uh suggested uh during our giants uh talk about uh the sandwich trials oh, yeah. um yeah. yeah margaret murray is a uh or uh yeah she's ma murray i think that margaret murray is uh her name but uh yes yeah. it was margaret murray uh and this is from yeah. 1920 yeah, she was uh, a scholar who was known basically for the witch cult hypothesis, which is now like pretty roundly discredited and not believed. But basically, mm-hmm. it's the idea that some of these witch trials and the idea that uh, some of the people who were convicted of witchcraft actually were practicing uh, like a sort of uh, paganistic slash like witchy religion. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that like the horned God was some kind of real deity. Uh, but yeah, now people have, you know, uh, do like, you know, uh, is it, does, is it worth reconsidering perhaps? But, uh, Maybe. you know, she definitely like, this is very like reading this article. I mean, it's amazing how much the norms of like, uh, this is for an art, like a, a, a journal called folklore that she wrote this, uh, or it's published on a journal called folklore. Um, 
And uh, it's amazing how the norms of especially stuff like this, like folklore, like, you know, folklorism, like the field, like anthropology, stuff like that have changed. Like she literally, you know, uh, cites Cotton Mather as a source <laughs> on what the organization of witches were like. Uh, yeah. which is, you know, and, like, she's going through these witch trials and their confessions and saying, like, what can we learn about these witch cults from, uh, their, you know, um, from what they say in their, like, sort of trials and their confessions. Which, you know, she does say, she, I think she does give a little bit of lip service to the idea that some of these people were under torture, but she says some of it, you know, just can't be, uh, coincidental. And basically, uh, one of the big conclusions that she makes is that the standard number of witches in a coven, particularly in Great Britain, is going to be, uh, 13. And yeah. that in, you know, this coven would basically consist of 12 members, and then, again, the 12 plus 1 formula of 12 members, and then the devil. And this mm -hmm. would come up again and again, you know, a lot of the time, people like her thing is like they would fill it in without prompting you know this would obviously be very much like laughed off uh in contemporary academia you know the mm -hmm. idea like are you kidding me like you mm -hmm. know these poor women were just repeating what you know they uh but margaret murray uh, in her day did sort of uh you know suggest this maybe uh we can read like a key yeah she quotes the confession of uh isabel beckwet uh who confessed uh to being a witch uh, it is usually supposed that witches under torture accuse recklessly all the women of their acquaintance. Isabel Beckwith's confession does not bear this out. At the Sabbath, the devil used to summon the wizards and witches in regular order. She remembered very well, having heard him call the old woman Colette first in these terms. Madame, the old woman Bequet, that's uh, Murray's interjection. Then the woman Felace, and afterwards the woman Hardy. Item, he called Marie, uh, wife of Massey, daughter of the said Colette said that after them, she herself was called by the devil, in these terms, the little Bequet. Uh, she also heard him call their Coles Bequet, who held her by the hand in dancing, and someone, uh, a woman, whom she did not know, held her by the other hand. There were about six others uh, there she did not know. This evidence points to 13 persons being present, and is of value by showing that even under torture, the witches adhered to the stated number. Uh, at Queen's Ferry in 1644, 13 women were tried together as witches. At Aloha in 1658, 13 persons or one coven were brought to trial. At Four Fair in 1661, the girl witch Jeanette Howitt stated that uh, there was that present with the devil, besied herself, uh, whom he called the pretty dancer, as, you know, written in this great, uh, you know, orthography here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the said Isabel Siri, Marie Rind, Helen Alexander, Isabel Dower Ward, and others whose names uh, she did not know to the number of 13 of all. Uh, so, again, mm. she just continues to list uh, all these, uh, you know, trials of witches in which 13 or uh, multiples of 13 uh, under the idea that they're multiple covens. Uh, were mm -hmm. killed yeah so either this was a thing uh or this was a notion that mm -hmm. there is an expectation that there would be 13 witches killed um, yeah yeah i mean she's got like f at least four or five more example yeah Isabel yeah Gowdy, it goes on and on too uh gave her evidence freely and without torture uh 13 persons in each coven uh janet bridheed uh, gave the names of 39 persons or three covens who were actually present at the Kirk at Nairn to see her admitted as a member of the organization. So I don't know what's going on in the 17th century, but uh, I mean, were the, 
were all of these prosecutions, even the people that gave their evidence freely and without torture, just the victims of like religious inquisitionists? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, or I mean, in, I guess they, they definitely this? were the victims, but were yes. they tr- innocent? Like, you know, were they innocent? Like, fully? I'm not saying they deserve uh, to be drowned or th- or burned at the stake, uh, pers- yeah. just for doing rituals. But the 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 common conception is that not only was it unjust to punish these people for being witches, but like none of them actually were witches. It's just kind of like a it's just kind of a belief that is almost ubiquitous in our culture. And I think certainly in any kind of expert domain like academia or journalism, that basically there was like absolutely, there was not one kind of shred of truth to even the fact that they were doing any kind of ritual like pagan magic. And, but then the implication is like, and even if they were, it'd be wrong to persecute them. But like we never back up and say, well, you know, what, what if they yeah. were and it's, what was the nature of that and i'm just a little not trying actually, to persecute anybody but i'm kind of curious yeah we should uh not go too far down that hole because we should definitely devote an episode to this type of stuff but like uh there is one case that i mean yeah like it's uh, a definitely nebulous terrain and i think that uh, margaret murray does point out one interesting uh case which is she is trying to think of french examples of the same sort of thing uh, of 13, because most of the evidence that she finds is uh, of Great Britain, like, deals with Great Britain. But uh, she does point out one thing, and she notes that uh, this is, in modern times, usually regarded as a trial for murder, but was considered by contemporary recorders and is, in its essence, a witch trial. So it kind of shows how even the sort of designation of witch trial is kind of based on the idea that nothing was going on. Whereas mm. in this case, it's generally considered to have more... Uh, legitimacy and that's the case of Gilles de Ray uh Marshal oh, of France. Gilles de Ray. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. uh right this is a confirmed yeah. kind of uh what was it 14th or 15th century kind of pizzagate yes 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 it a was way. a 15th century pizzagate situation yeah uh well he definitely was accused of yeah like uh some like pedophilia like you know sacrifice John Wayne Gacy like yeah trying to summon a... demons yeah yeah um Right, yeah, and those who were proved to be closely connected with uh, him and his rites and sacrifices, which he performed, uh, nine, including himself, were arrested and tried, two saved themselves by flight, and two had died shortly before, in all 13. So, that's, you know, uh, yeah, but it's interesting that, like, this isn't seen as being a witch trial and is thought of as being murder, but there were, like, you know, and it wouldn't, this guy, it seems like, was very much into uh, the occult. He would be, like, a good episode in and of himself really oh yeah because uh, yeah, there's so should. much there it's cr- you know uh like uh and it's it's crazy but, and of course yeah. the the uh, i'm forgetting the name of that catholic cardinal that um that kenneth anger wanted to make ode to artifice about who yeah like to fuck goats and right um, i forget his name as and well. like it was a fan of golden showers and was like a huge occultist even though he was a catholic cardinal that would be another i mean in this case i think the only evidence we have is uh is abuse of of goats um but who knows what else he's yeah. into but you know i mean if people were doing stuff like that i mean yeah I think like Gilles they're, they're... Ray also had like at least a claimed associate um who was trying to teach him how to summon demons who was also had some clerical connection um 
I uh, wasn't DeRay one of the military commanders that served under yeah he was basically it's funny because like uh, yeah he was a companion in arms of Joan of Arc Um, and I think that like Crowley actually called him like the male Joan of Arc never mind that like you know his crimes were like you know of a very Um, different nature yeah but it's interesting because there's like the conflation there you know she was racing for for witchcraft you know she's like this great (laughs) hero whereas like you know he like uh also was kind of killed for witchcraft but like he probably did it was francois prelati who was a uh, francois prelati who was the italian priest and alchemist who uh took part in the murders um oh okay and a probable sexual partner of his uh yeah. yeah but this guy he murdered like didn't he murder a lot of children yeah uh yeah and like dr- tried to like you know them. drink their blood or something like that yeah he wanted to i think summon a demon uh that was yeah his so he was doing goal. human sacrifices to yeah summon demons yes, yeah and this is like a rich to. like was he a count i forget or uh he was some kind of you know, I think he was a baron. Yeah, he was a baron. Or a baron. And, and was like, yeah. obviously, yeah, a knight, a, a sort of celebrated, I guess, military figure under Joan of Arc. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So these things, you know. Curly described him as almost in every respect the male equivalent of Joan of Arc, whose main crime was the pursuit of knowledge. Oh, okay. Oh, God. <laughs> so uh, word. Okay. Yeah, um, okay. yeah. But of course, there are some people who are like, um oh no like uh well maybe he didn't do anything you know like uh they were just being religious so mm-hmm. uh yeah that's uh definitely an easy one to uh you know open get your foot in the door in terms of the uh you know witchcraft uh skepticism or the you know the satanic panic revival here the witch cult hypothesis is like you know not really taken but you know it's uh we'll, we'll keep it on the unknown column we won't write it off yeah, uh, yeah, we'll, yeah, and it, we'll, yeah. We'll get to it. It'll be on the docket. In any um, case, the connection with thirteen is is an interesting one. Did you want to talk a little more about the Raleigh writings on 13? Yeah. Yeah, word. Uh, Yes. I'm going through my notes now, and I'm reading that the uh, Fear of 13, uh, according to, like, a Smithsonian Magazine article from 1987, uh, it costs America a billion dollars a year in absenteeism, train and plane cancellations, and reduced commerce in the 13th of the month. But anyway, yeah, well, wow. I guess well done, Comrade 13. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so the yeah, we talked about them all. Yeah, that was mentioned in Anne Marie Schimmel's book on the mystery of numbers. Who's like, she's a pretty famous like Islamicist who did a lot to sort of popularize Sufism. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess she wrote a book on numerology. She talks, she mentions something that uh, is going to come up, I think, again in some of the Raleigh stuff, talking about a significance in Maya and Aztec culture, and also it's a uh, 
you know, value in uh, some rabbinical stuff and, and in the Talmud, like, uh, you know, the land of Israel will be divided into 13 parts. Uh, you know, the mm-hmm. Zohar elaborates the importance of 13 when describing the three-headed sacred ancient of days. He can be found the 13 paths of kinds of love because the wisdom hidden in him divides itself three times toward the four directions. And he, the ancient one, comprises all of them. So that's like a more uh, conventional take on the significance of 13 in a Judeo-Christian sort of uh, paradigm. Raleigh is a really interesting figure who I came uh, came across uh, in uh, the, uh, during the research for this. And uh, he is definitely someone who sticks out as having some interesting things to say about 13 uh, from a pretty Masonic point of view. He was a spiritualist and someone who was interested in hermeticism and masonry uh, who was active in uh, the early uh, 20th century. He died uh, in, uh, well, his funeral was on June 19th, uh, 1918. There's some great material on him uh, on a blog, ehbritain.blogspot.com, which is like an amazing blog on American spiritualism in general, focusing on uh, Emma Britton, who was a big Mm -hmm. figure in American spiritualism, who might be, you know, a good person to talk about at some point. But uh, she did some work on Raleigh uh, and has done some really good research on him and uh, has brought a lot of stuff uh, to light uh, regarding him uh, that I'll definitely draw from as I'm talking here. but uh, anyway, and I'll mention uh, the blog as I, as I do. But uh, mm-hmm. one of the big books that uh, is interesting uh, that Raleigh authored, he wrote a lot, um, and a lot of them had to do with numerology. But the one that I read most thoroughly before this podcast is called uh, Esoteric Masonry or the Storehouse Unlocked, mm-hmm. which he wrote under the pseudonym of uh, Philotus uh, with a Y. And he talks about the number 13 very frequently uh, in this book. The main idea of this book, I'm just going to cut right to it. Well, maybe there's a way for me to talk about it in his own words. Mm -hmm. He says that basically his interpretation of the Bible, uh, both the Old and the New Testaments, is fully esoteric based on kind of hidden meanings. And one of his big sort of readings is the idea of Jesus, uh, you know, kind of, uh, as the ictus or the fish, you know, of course you see the Jesus fish, you know, the association mm-hmm. between Jesus and ictus is uh, a common thing. But his association between that basically is that Jesus is kind of your sperm. And you have to, in order to mystically ascend, you have to conserve your sperm. And, uh, mm-hmm. yes, he writes... Um, uh, I'm just trying to think of where to start here. Okay. So, uh, that you may better understand what is to follow, I will here note some truths that it is well to fix firmly in the mind. It is well known that there enters into the composition of the body several minerals, known as cell salts. There are 12 in number, and they and are the 12 foundations noted by the great seer in the book of Revelation. These minerals are ever present in the blood, in all caps, finding their way into the minute cell life of the body. But when nature would manufacture the life force within us, she appropriates the strength of the blood, divesting it of all minerals or cell salts, leaving it more of a whitish color than red. If you will pardon a seeming digression, I will enumerate the twelve quote-unquote men contained in the body. First, the bony man. Second, the muscular man. Third, the lymphatic man. Fourth, the venous man. Fifth, the arterial man. Sixth, the cerebral spinal man. Seventh, the tubular man. Eighth, the sympathetic man. 
9th, the nerve man, 10th, the liver man, 11th, the conscious man, 12th, the subconscious man, and the mystic 13th of the life force. So 13th is kind of the culmination uh, here. Okay. Um, all huh. these men, if you, as you will observe, have a quote-unquote home or stated place in the body, save the life force. Quote-unquote, he is, quote-unquote, not clothed, but clothed upon. I suspect that if the reader will study closely, he may discover the hidden meaning in the words of the great master. I was naked, and ye clothed me not. Perforce, I am led to discuss a phase of this matter that at first may seem foreign to the subject in hand, but close scrutiny will discover its vital connection. Uh, so, you know, he goes on to talk about uh, basically uh, the idea of this as uh, being uh, sperm. Um, and uh, the, it's kind of uh, the idea of the psychophysical germ is uh, an important one that he kind of uh, harps on as uh, this uh, big thing that's going to come to kind of fruition. He writes later on, um, like, uh, you know, significantly later, uh, he talks in greater detail about Jesus' sort of significance of, uh, you know, being this uh, continuous sort of thing, the fish growing older, uh, Moses being saved from the water, like all this stuff is all like uh, kind of esoterically related. Uh, the whole idea of, you know, he relates with masonry, the idea of your body, like the stones of the temple of your body uh, being kind of Your body is preserved. a temple, basically? Yeah, exactly. Your body is a temple, yeah, and the stones of it age. are your psychophysical germs that, you know, you must turn not back, uh, which I guess means like to... Uh, come uh and you have to really uh you know stick to the the path and uh keep like uh so i'm gonna skip ahead to mm -hmm. uh page 14 where he goes deeper into the sort of relevance of 13 so uh yeah he's talking about um the uh he's talking about uh in john jesus going through the avenues of the body i'm trying to find his citation uh, for this stuff, talking about different colors, but it's all, like, very, uh, obscure. But anyway, uh, the force in you is your own recording angel, faithfully preserving an exact image of your each and every innermost thought. It constitutes a psychic body that you shall inhabit after physical dissolution. Do you not see that by jealously guarding your psychophysical germs, uh, <laughs> from uh. all the desires, emotions, and patches of the flesh, and the thoughts to which these things give rise, that the psychic body builds itself? For it does build it out of the material you send it, whether good or bad. In other words, your psychic body is made up of your own individual Akaic record. Uh, or, I guess Akashic record. Akashic yeah, record. But, uh, That's still yeah, a big but, thing today. That's interesting. Yes, uh, he spells it a like uh, he spells it like Acacia, like Akashic, like a A C A C. Oh, interesting. I A C. But anyway, and becomes your paradise or hell, just as you make it. Do you not better understand the words of Solomon when he says, "As a man thinketh in his heart." And uh, Raleigh puts in quotes, pineal gland, or the heart of the brain. So is he. Uh, do you not see that the first and supernatastic confronts you as the absolute mastery of your thought? Or Paul says, bringing every thought under subjection of the, to the will of God? Surely you cannot be so blind as to not see the fact that your thought determines your destiny. Uh, he that looketh after woman to lust after her in his heart hath committed the act already, says the great master. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, so he's anyway. much, like, much like the Kellogg's. And a lot of the Arrangians, yes. uh, deeply, uh, deeply no fap. 
Yes, he's very much committed uh, to the idea of, of NoFap. And there's a notion that basically there's like 13 moons that you have to kind of hold uh, your germ in. Like, uh, well, he talks a little bit more about the significance of 13 uh, when he's talking about Paul. Uh, mm. Hence, in this work, we are not dealing with the people per se, but what their name and life symbolize. We have seen that the word Paul means a small voice. How many letters did Paul write? 13, including the book of Hebrews, though his authorship of the last name book is disputed. We shall see and all. Uh, how many men did we discover in the body? 13, including Jesus, the mystic 13th. Is it not plain to you that each one of the epistles of Paul is a message, separate and distinct to each of the 13 men in the body? Uh, so, you know, this is the kind okay. of, uh, like, a, a 13 uh, interpretation uh, that he's doing, where 13 is kind of the culmination of this long thing where uh, it's sort of the, the fish in a continuous path, one after another, and uh, they have to be sort of realized over the course of these moons. I'm trying to find the part where he uh, talks about uh, the moons in particular. Um, but, uh, yeah. That is very... A... The moon thing coming up again and again is very interesting. I yes. Think la later on, um, I'd love for us to do an entire episode about the planet Saturn. And oh, yeah, for sure. There was a book That'll I read a couple cool. years ago that had, I think, I forget when it was published, but it basically, it had, it advanced this kind of, um, almost like, well, it, it was a sort of pseudo-astronomical theory about the planet Saturn, and basically it, it involved the, the, the realization that Earth was once a satellite of Saturn. <laughs> and then there was like a planet X event where like a wayward planet on an elliptical orbit, which of course is in all kinds of other conspiracy theories like Nibiru or whatever, uh, made a close pass in the inner solar system, maybe like 30,000 years ago. And it ripped Earth away from Saturn. And uh, basically like even we were talking in the earlier episodes about uh, about Saturn kind of you know, being Kronos and like time and like the, how Blavatsky had all these ideas about it being disjointed. Like there was some kind of cataclysm that like disjointed us from like time that is yes, sort of dramatized right. and like the stories of the gods. Yeah. The creation the, of temporal time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That that's interesting too. Yeah. And, and I think even the idea that like, because we know that there, there's like a spooky hexagonal, uh, super storm that basically like, uh, is in the North pole of, Saturn, which is honestly like the sussest thing about it. Like it's so fucking sus. And I think that actually does show up in, even though we didn't discover it photographically until the 20th century, um, the, the prominence of hexagons and everything is like very mm. interesting. And like maybe the rotation of like the hexagon storm, like taught us like what time was in like a real, in, like a real time observable way um, as like very early humans. I mean, this is all like basically not like <laughs> accepted astronomically, but I found it to be a very fascinating and compelling narrative. Um, but yeah, uh, but yeah, one uh, day we'll, yeah, we'll get on that. Yeah, this guy definitely did get. We definitely should do uh, a Saturn episode because I do like you know doing all the reading for this podcast. I encounter Saturn like all the time, including 
in my reading for this episode, like, uh, like, uh, pretty frequently, like, uh, because it comes you know, up the, again and again. Yeah, and it's even, definitely even a big the oddity deal. that it's the only planet to have like a a moon with a dense atmosphere, a Titan, and then like we're the only planet that has like a dense atmosphere, and the fact that if we were a satellite of Saturn or Saturn, which so let's say if it was like closer to the sun. Um, then conditions would be like similar, but then we would see perhaps 12 moons in the sky because Saturn has about, I think, 20 major moons and maybe you could see, you know, um, hmm. 12 of them. And so, That's an interesting take. Yeah, wow, I mean, huh? That's an interesting take. Just thinking, just thinking. Um, spitball. Spit wow. Hmm. Yeah, like, uh, yes, I, uh, I figured that it was like, you know, the time, like the sort of lunar rotations, but yeah, maybe it literally, uh, but anyway, I did find what he says about the moons, uh, which is, you know, they're about the maturity of the germs. And I guess this is how long you're kind of like training yourself and maybe, you know, being like doing nofap. Um, he says, uh, your first one will be longer than 13 days from birth to maturity. So will your second for each one matures one sign later each time, but your fifth germ will be born 13 days earlier than your first one. In other words, the moon gains 13 days in the time elapsed from the birth of your first germ. Some months, the moon will gain two days, and others three days, but in each and every case, the total gained in five months is 13 days. These numbers are significant to those who are familiar with the death, burial, and resurrection of Hiram Abiff. Uh, and that's like this major sort of uh, founder hero in, in masonry. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, like he, I think it was mentioned in that MIT article, Hiram Abiff. Uh, yeah, it's like kind of this Masonic hero and like he plays a role the story of Hiram Abiff plays a big role in the uh like uh initiation rituals of masonry and uh basically it's like a, a mason who like died rather than reveal his secrets uh I see, which to, is like, what that essay said about Jacques de Molay is that you know he was seen as a hero like actually that Swedish guy said that actually um you know uh the, the 13 is his lucky number because it, it shows that, you know, a, a, a member of this, like, priestly class, this initiate order, refusing to rat on his fellow monks and yeah. reveal his secrets, even at, under pain of death. Right, yeah. I don't know, like, why, uh, what he means when he says this will be clear to people who know the, the meaning of Hiram Abiff. Uh, because even in his book, he does discuss... Hiram Abiff. Maybe, does Hiram Abiff have 13 letters? Uh, five? No, it doesn't have 13 letters, and it's 10. It's 10. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what he's getting at. I mean, where he says the meaning of this number will be significant to do with Hiram Abiff, uh, but, yeah, he doesn't even... Ex, yeah, um, it doesn't uh, necessarily. It, it, it explain does say it. that according to allfreemasonry.com, the legend of Hiram Abiff has roots in ancient veneration of the sun. So uh, I noticed that also about Raleigh that he was described as a sun worshiper. Yes, he was. In fact, uh, he eventually embraced like uh, he eventually started going by the name uh, Hawk Nazine El Dorado Can and embraced like his idea of Aztec sun worship. Uh, which is interesting based on kind of what we had talked about before with the significance of uh, 13, which obviously was also a big deal for him, you know, and uh, it, it was something that was also very significant in uh, Aztec astrology and, and numerology. Oh, another thing that popped up in Raleigh before we move on to the uh, his sort of later sun worship phase, he also used this big word that stuck out for us in the Urantia book of uh, the Melchizedek. 
uh-huh. or Melchizedek. Uh, yeah, he pointed out that the word Melchizedek has 13 letters. Um, mm. He says, what does the word Melchizedek mean? King of righteousness. In other words, the lodge of the great masters. So our candidate, having made proficiency after the order of these 13 letters, passes on to mastership. So, but to yeah, be fair, though, I mean, Melchizedek, it has to be a transliteration of an earlier language. So isn't it? Yeah, definitely. You know, Melchizedek it, must be Couldn't Hebrew, have just been transliterated no by a Mason who wanted to give it? I'm sure you could find a way to spell it that doesn't have Yeah, letters. in fact, just looking at Wikipedia right now, there are, of course, alternate spellings. Because, yeah, it's uh, definitely a Hebrew word. So it mm-hmm. definitely has no vowels originally. So it definitely doesn't have 13 letters originally. Um, and like you can transliterate like the H uh, in Melchizedek like multiple ways. Like you can do it with a ch, you know. So, True. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's not necessarily to, like, uh, just being fair. That's, like, you know, uh, true. Like, and there's, like, tons of stuff. This stuff is, like, wacky. But anyway, so yeah. he eventually, and uh, we'll definitely make available um, in our notes doc, again, another reason to subscribe to Elwara, although maybe uh, it'll be available to others eventually. But you should subscribe to Elwara. We'll definitely post this uh, link where you can see the picture of him and his, uh, oh, yeah. his Aztec like, getup with his yeah, long, his falling headband hair and, and his headband. Hair. Yeah. I'm looking uh, at this his... article, the, the Sun City Searcher for the Superwomen. Uh, curious mission to America of the Toltec Prince can, with his tidings of the mysterious golden city of the sun and the cult of the forthcoming Superwoman who will accomplish the millennium. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, uh, yes, uh, yeah, he Prince also... Watch Mok- Moktsin El Dorado can. Yes, he apparently ran uh, for, like, uh, a law board. Oh, yeah, he ran, uh, actually, as a socialist. As a socialist. Yeah. yeah, as a socialist and um, as a to be a judge. Uh, this article says, uh, yeah, where was it? Yeah, socialist would sit in high court. Albert Sidney Raleigh of Hot Springs to oppose Carol D. Wood. Uh, yeah, Albert Raleigh, socialist, claiming descent from Sir Walter Raleigh. So he is allegedly related. Um, that's what Raleigh, North Carolina is named after, is a candidate for Supreme Court justice in this state to defeat Justice Carol D. Wood. Raleigh is a picturesque character, wearing long auburn locks, a suntan suit that is seldom changed, and with a peculiar facial expression, he attracts a second look from passers-by. Impossible, (laughs) socialists say. Socialists here state that Raleigh is violating socialistic rules and asking for the authority to interpret law on the Supreme Bench, that socialism does not recognize as just law. Why he couldn't sit on a bench and pass on the validity of a law and remain a socialist, said a socialist leader here tonight. We are opposed to many laws that exist, and as we don't believe in them at all, how can we pass upon their material points? Raleigh proposes to make a campaign, it is said, to ask the support of socialists in the state, using the opportunity to further advance his theories of government. Um, so, so that, I mean, that, and that was in that was in Arkansas. Yeah, the very and fact so, that he would want to run as a socialist, like, attests to the link between, like, spiritualism and socialism, like, in the early 20th and, like, you know, the 19th century. Uh, it is but, a fascinating link to see that, I mean, first of all, that there's kind of enough socialists in, like, Hot Springs in Arkansas to sort of refer to them as a group, I think is kind of interesting, yeah. around the turn of the century. But then also that the way they kind of distance themselves from him. I'm trying to yeah. tell if these are, are these, like, Eugene V. Deb socialists? Are these, like proto-DSA. Uh, it's interesting these, like, how th- they're definitely uh, not proto-DSA because their stance seems to be like anti-electoralism like altogether. Like how dare you like try to run for office? Uh, like it's weird. Like uh, or try to take like it, it, you would think like certainly a DSA type would be happy to have a socialist in any office like even if they were just you know but 
Yeah, maybe these or guys that their were objection more, will be you know. something else, but they seem opposed on principle to the idea of a socialist interpreting law. I guess like, that's or, what they mean is that the, the court, the, this court position itself is like a bourgeois, a part of like a bourgeois system, and thus right. going on the court to like be a Trotskyite, I guess, and like be an entryist and and start changing laws, um, is uh is not they they're not into that and um they don't think they you know can pass upon their material points so they actually do seem kind of like kind of legit um yeah i don't know i think uh, this guy is kind of like anti-electoralism yeah he's yeah uh, this guy's kind of like the satanist that wanders into like you know the socialist meeting and is like bleh i'm like lucifer 666 i want (laughs) to yeah i'm running as a socialist yeah exactly i'm like sun worshiper 1488 um yeah um yeah well he did not win the place in the arkansas supreme court uh, according to this blog, instead heading around uh, 1909 for the mecca of Midwestern occultism, Chicago, where he establishes himself as an occult le- teacher and leader of the Order of Melchizedek, while apparently earning his living as a school teacher at Lane Technical High School. Uh, he encounters some remnant of W.P. Phelan's occult group, uh, the trappings of which he will take on later in life, using Phelan's hermetic publishing company as his personal imprint, referring to himself as elder brother and claiming to run the Hermetic Order of Atlantis. For sure, at this time, he becomes involved in the alienation of affection lawsuit I've described elsewhere and is accused of running a predatory occult group that victimizes women. He also spins out or up or off a number of occult organizations during this period beyond the Order of Melchizedek, which had a postal address, the Grand Order of Mystics of Asia, the Valiant Brothers of the Line, the American Christian Esoteric Order. Yeah, wow um yeah this guy (laughs) got around and he he did end up in san francisco at some point and um and yeah had this uh this uh hermetic publishing company i think it was called um yeah and he he that's what he published a lot of books yeah including this one that i read yeah he did a lot of stuff about atlantis and um yeah, he, he's kind of an interesting... Um, I think that he character. actually even like wrote like an unofficial third chapter to Blavatsky's Secret Doctrine that we talked about in our Giants episode. Uh, that he was, Yes, he's definitely an interesting character. He has an article quoted here on this blog. It's Angry Husband Threatens Raid on New Religion Headquarters. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you can uh, get the idea of what, uh, what was going on. So he... Uh, Anyway, like, yeah, he decided that he was a direct descendant of the Toltecs, uh, having been born in Mexico. Um, you know, he declared that that was the, the case. Um, and uh, he, you know, took on this name of Hawk Noxian El Dorado Can. At that point, uh, he put out, like, you know, he continued to publish. I think that he eventually did return to Arkansas um, at that time. And he sent his chief follower... Elizabeth Brillhart to confinement in the Arkansas State Hospital for nervous uh, diseases, yeah. pending sanity hearings, and taking mm-hmm. into custody several children of cult members. Um, he was found sane and committed for trial on a charge of contributory dependency. His alleged influence of the parents of the children of the members of his cult, he contributed to making dependence of them. He was found guilty, fined $200, which I guess was a lot at the time, sentenced to six months in the county jail. He died under the noonday sun on prison work detail a week later. His death is attributed to epilepsy. Yeah, his uh, obituary is interesting. Uh, Dr. A.S. Raleigh, alleged sun worshiper, 
who was arrested several weeks ago after neighbors complained of his actions, died suddenly at the county farm at noon yesterday. The cause of death is attributed to epileptic fits. Little could be learned of his earlier life. However, a newspaper interview printed in 1913, during one of his uh, revivals among his tribe, the Toltec Indians, yeah, I guess they're just taking that at face value, that he's, uh, that's his tribe. Okay. He was the early Elizabeth Warren. Uh, yeah. Gives the information that, I mean, he's in the Midwest. Uh, gives the information <laughs> that he was born near Perry, Arkansas, but later moved to the Senola Mountains, Senaloa Mountains, in northwestern Mexico. Uh-huh. It was said that he practiced law before he became a priest of the sun worshippers. The sun worshippers believe that their god, Quetzalcoatl, is located in the sun, and that when he returns, he will return from the sun, mounted on a golden eagle. Dr. Raleigh is said to have believed that they would conquer their territory, Mexico, when Quetzalcoatl returned. An official at the farm, which I guess is what they call the prison, uh, mm-hmm. said that Dr. Raleigh was at work in the fields cutting brush with a gang of other prisoners. At 11 o'clock, it was said that he told another prisoner that he was subject to epileptics. County Judge Lee Miles had given instructions that Dr. Raleigh was to be given only light work until he had become accustomed to the heat and life on the farm. Raleigh was sitting on a stump talking to the guard when he complained of uh, first the heat. The first sign of weakness showed upon him when the noon bell rang. Uh, he staggered backwards and then forward and fell flat in his face. So wow. wow. So he was literally killed by the sun. Which is amazing. Yeah, wow. right? It's perfect. I think that the blogger certainly picked up on the irony as well. Like, uh... Yeah, and eventually uh, Mrs. Brillhart was uh, adjudicated insane. There's another article. Um, Mrs. Brillhart is declared insane. Sun worshiper, known as the Old Witch, is taken to hospital. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She was known as the Old Witch, and that aptly describes her appearance. She maintained the stoical attitude of the Aztec Indian she claims to be during the hearing, but after the verdict was returned by the jury, she recited from the United States Constitution on the right of liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It is only when she was addressed by Mr. and Mrs. Dow Ayers, who are also followers of Dr. Raleigh and with whom she lived before she was into the county hospital in May, that there is any light of understanding in her face. When anyone else speaks to her, she stares into space and casts down her eyes and refuses to say anything. She was quite dramatic to her farewell in her farewell to Mr. Ayers. Um, so, wow. yeah, that's okay. uh, the... That- the, yeah, that sounds interesting like, I, episode I, I, from the Masonic history of our country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to circle back to him one day because I wonder how much I didn't realize there was a San Francisco connection. Um, yeah, with him or some of the other people. I saw one of these other guys that was uh, was it Wigs or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. Who ran with this guy and then was sort of like an early pioneer of illegal futures trading. Or something yeah, like that. Yeah, there's some was, like, implicated in a bank collapse. Article. Like, yeah. he like embezzled money from like a bank in Chicago to like fund like uh, New Mexican mining. Yeah. Like, concerns, uh, all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah, um, interesting. This is an amazing blog in general, like on, yeah, on spiritualism. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, so I definitely recommend it to to any listener. There's tons of great topics on there, and and Britain is also herself very interesting. But yeah, um, for sure. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about like maybe in more modern times, like maybe the 20th century, like various people's? I, I've seen a lot of names checked. Uh, in terms of people who were either Triskaidekaphobes or Triskaidekaphiles, um, mm-hmm. like Hitler, Herbert Hoover, <laughs> I forget his yeah. first name, but Eastman from Eastman Kodak, P.T. Barnum was kind of yeah. obsessed with the number 13, and he, he of course, was a Mason. 13. He was yeah. a Mason, right? 
I didn't know that. Uh, but no, he definitely... we read that at SK Bain told us that when they oh, PT right. Bar- Barnum and Bailey had their clown right. school. Right. Well, they or set it up. Yeah, in Florida. For the yeah, CIA. I forgot the detail that he was a Mason. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All of the yeah. all of the uh, Barnum brothers were Masons. Hmm. Wow. Uh, well, yeah. He definitely had a whole chapter of his autobiography where he talks about the recurrence of thirteen in his life uh, and like trying to avoid it and kind of being haunted by it. Um, you know, and always being put in room number 13. It's kind of like a quaint, cute chapter, you know, uh, where uh, he's just kind of making, like, you know, uh, sort of on one hand, like, just sort of a winking thing about superstition, but he definitely did write that whole chapter about uh, being kind of hounded by 13. Yeah, that one um, NPR interview described it as basically a kind of, like, earnest exploration of whether or not the number 13 had had like a real oh right yeah by the life. guy who wrote on on 13 yeah he wrote that book he was kind of intrigued by it, it like Lachmeyer, uh like a wrote kind of like a pop book on 13 uh he was like intrigued by this uh 13 club that i guess existed yeah um yeah yeah and their, their whole point was to like gather and dine in groups of 13 to kind of flout the superstition and you know they would like uh like, he would have menus like dressed up as gravestones and yeah yeah it was this what? like a uh, civil war captain who was like a rich guy in new york and he managed to recruit like 12 other people uh to go on this like quest to debunk um 13 yeah, very very wacky sounds like kind of uh a little bit lame he was talking it up like they were so brave to defy the superstition of 13 but uh, yeah npr was, of course is like lapping it up and, and like like yeah. praising these people it's like people that go out to like prove that like yeah i don't know it's just like like folks they're triscodecophiles yeah 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 yeah, exactly <laughs> you know yeah. like that was how i felt about it a little bit yeah, exactly. like this is right. us like what are they you guys 13. doing yeah <laughs> they're gathering groups of 13 on purpose <laughs> like yeah exactly um but yeah. yeah i couldn't find i looked up because i did read that article about hitler like being afraid of 13 i couldn't find any uh, like independent confirmation of it and i was not able to find like I would have maybe even considered buying that guy's book because it was about 13, but there was no Kindle edition. So mm. I was like, forget it. Like, I've oh only my. just now moved to actually ordering books, like, for this podcast. So, again, yeah. you know, just to shill the Alwara frequency, the, <laughs> the investment goes right back into the podcast. Um, the more but, threatening the book is to the CIA, the more it costs. Yeah, Amazon, exactly. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or you have yeah. to, like, rent it. You have to, like, borrow it for an hour from archive.org, which is bullshit. I don't know yeah, who invented so that. Yeah, that's so annoying. So annoying. Sometimes it well, lets you borrow because, it for two weeks. like, Chuck Wendig or whatever, like, these boys oh, like, um, God. that's stealing or whatever. So right. now, they, like, yeah. Um, we're, like, a pretty insufferable uh, screenwriting yes. advice uh guy on twitter yeah um, um, yeah and he yeah. did do that for his like sci-fi novels or something like yeah like his star <sighs> trek like or star wars like you know fanfic like uh or authorized fanfics or whatever it's like um excuse me uh this is a pirate website one of the most like valuable public services like on the internet but anyway yeah. um good for you bro yeah thanks uh All but right. anyway yeah that uh we digress um yeah. yeah like i couldn't find any uh independent confirmation of that hitler thing i did hear john paul getty also was named by Amory schimmel as being uh triscodecophobe uh really yes um and roosevelt yeah they were well they were afraid of dining with 13 people at a table you know for that uh the most common sort of incarnation of the superstition although you hear about that less now i feel like now it's more around like the events on friday the 13th but 
Yeah, uh, and Friday the 13th. Thing. I mean, we have to, like, maybe we, we could talk a second because I think I, most people probably do remember. Um, I, I mean, one of the first, like, symbolic things that pops into your head when you hear about 13, but particularly about Friday the 13th, is like, is that, is Jason. The, yeah. The psychotic, definitely. demonic, like, serial killer who came back from yes. the dead. And, um, and I mean, I guess, like, Friday the 13th was when Jacques de Molay was burned at the stake, right? That's where that comes from. Basically, um, like, Friday the 13th being, like, a, a, a spooky, cursed day, like we talked about. That is, like, what, yeah, I've definitely heard that, but I haven't been able to trace that idea further back to, like, you know, around that time. So I think it wasn't, like, people made, it, made that association, okay. but it was, like, in the 20th century that people started to really make that link uh, with the Knights Templar as a thing. The, yeah. I think that it might have to do with, like, Good Friday and the combination of 13 at a Table is like why this became hmm. a thing but yeah it's un it's unclear there was a book that came out like in 1955 called the iron king mm -hmm. um and like uh that maybe popularized this idea um of the sort of templar connection friday the 13th was a date that he arrested the templars um, oh okay friday the 13th okay. october 1307 gotcha um, yeah Gotcha. And uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's just an interesting, it doesn't really have, I don't even think it has any relevance to the original, like the first movie in terms of. What is uh, the significance of Friday the 13th and the movie Friday the 13th? Yeah, good question. I remember like the first movie. I haven't watched in a while. I remember very vividly like the jump scare at the very end. Uh, oh yeah, where he jumps like, out of the Jason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. It would be like I think we definitely should do an episode at some point about like some of these slasher movies. Like some of them are very interesting. Like Halloween. It uh, is October. Halloween um, three is an interesting conspiracy movie. Yeah, it is. It is spooky season, but you know it's kind of always spooky season on Civil of Jihad. So it really yeah. is. We may be able to fit that in. Um, near the, yeah. uh, closer to halloween but uh but yeah i, I don't think because it's about it takes place at a summer camp and they're it's like they're out there in the summertime all these young people um and i don't think it's like ever mentioned in the movie that it's like oh it's friday the 13th but still that that's become such a meme in our culture that it almost gave the 13 thing like a new breath of life yeah exactly and, um, and there is something so kind of uncanny and supernatural and beyond comprehension with all the Friday the 13th movies, even though they definitely vary in terms of like how shitty they are. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't put any of them, uh, especially many of the sequels, like, I mean, <laughs> you know, like they're, they're not the, the highest horror I remember the one where they impale art. Jason with like a, uh, like they accidentally impale him with like a spear or they do it on purpose to try to destroy him. Yeah. But the spear gets struck by lightning, and that brings him back to life. <laughs> um, yeah. There's all or kinds of wacky Jason things. Takes Manhattan was a great one. Oh, too. yeah, yeah. Isn't that where uh, he's like, a guy tries to like fist fight him on a rooftop, yeah, like, and then he, he punches well. his head off into a, a, yeah. a trash can? Yes, yeah. He does pretty well trying to box him, but yeah, yeah. he doesn't get very far, because he's just like, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And even the first one doesn't necessarily have super... Or does it have supernatural? I guess it does. Like, well, no, because it's like the the mother is the serial killer in the first one. Sorry, spoiler alert. Oh um, God! It's actually uh, not Jason, but like the the sort of the ghost of Jason. It's like 
she is doing it because like her son drowned at this summer camp and she wants yes. to she's gone crazy and wants to take revenge but then the second one even at the end when jason pops out of the water it's like a, a fever dream it, it's like yeah. a jump scare and it's right. not real but then the second one is like well what if he was real and then all the other right. movies are about that so uh right i think we can talk more at a later point about the the role of horror films yeah. like in... i haven't even seen those movies in so long so i'd have to i have put interesting things in them like yes, you know and they yes. track over so long like such a long period of time you can definitely probably track many like cultural transformations in you know the plots of the movies and you know things like that. oh for but, sure yeah. I, I think horror is a genre that lends itself particularly well to kind of a broader cultural analysis of the sort of like absolutely you know, yeah yeah like the 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 things that it's evoking because it's evoking it has to come up with compelling anxieties and fear like tap upon yeah. fears and a kind of our collective unconscious that can resonate and freak people out so you almost have to be even kind of symbolically attached to uh to to something that would spook people out and you well, can see with I, yeah. every decade it kind of changing like the the shape of the horror you know it goes from like attack of the 50 foot woman and like the blob <laughs> in the 50s to these kind of serial killer things in uh the 70s and 80s um, where it's like low, it's like psycho sickos, like reflecting obviously the rise in crime and the serial killer phenomenon going on yeah. in the culture at the time, et cetera. And then, you know, even like after 9-11, you see like hostile, like this kind of Guantanamo Bay CIA black site, like torture porn kind of mm-hmm. thing happening. But, but not to get uh, too off <laughs> track. Um, yeah, it's interesting how now I feel like we're witnessing a revival of like, demonic like hereditary like but anyway like uh yeah that's uh we can definitely but yeah i think that well like an interesting point that i've heard observed is that the concerns of horror as a genre are very similar like it's kind of a reductive idea like and they're like kind of apples to oranges but the concerns of horror as a genre and the concerns of like religion are Mm. basically the same like it's the very close to like religious issues and religious concerns and of course you can see that like you know the most archetypal horror movie which i i don't think we have in the docket coming up but we're definitely going to do an episode on at some point uh but like you know the most influential and the most like sort of frequently referenced uh horror movie like uh in recent decades is the exorcist you know um you know which has a whole like aura of mystery and like i think there actually was like a murderer who like worked on the exorcist but uh anyway yeah you get back to 13 yeah Yeah, or like uh 13 related uh things but yeah i mean we could uh 13 is is a very good jumping off point to like all kinds of yeah oh for sure Um, well i think that that's like kind of the thing like you can associate 13 with oh you know what actually uh i recently watched relative this episode speaking of horror movies i watched that movie the number 23 Oh, uh, which is like a that. horror movie about like you know the like uh, obsession with numerology like driving someone like crazy mm-hmm. there's like an interesting scene where um you know and of course 23 is like 13 plus 10 you know i feel like of course they couldn't uh, make it about 13 so they had to make it about uh 200. 23 but yeah and i guess there is sort of a, a history to the 23 enigma where i think William S. Burroughs kind of wrote about some sort of strange coincidence involving 23 and your favorite, uh, Mm. or one of your favorite sus authors, Robert Anton Wilson had kind of, uh, discussed 23 as being like, uh, the 23 enigma 
came up in his Illuminatus uh, trilogy mm. previously. We'll so. definitely do it a critical uh, uh, assault on Illuminatus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that movie is kind of... I mean, it's a very weird film. And I looked at the person who wrote it, and, like, he never wrote anything else. Huh. And it was, like, a complete failure. Like, And yeah. it is, like, one of those unintentionally funny movies where, like, Jim Carrey is, like, very weirdly miscast, and the plot is just bizarre and everything. It kind of reminded me of one of our favorite films, Serenity, uh, that came out uh-huh. in recent years. It kind of had the Serenity vibe. Uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. like, uh, yeah, so it has that sort of, like, so, like, what is this weird, like, kind of, anyway, like, and it has this sort of, like, stilted noir, like, almost Jessica Rabbit type feel to it. But, like, anyway, <laughs> like, um, so, yeah, there's this interesting scene in the movie where Jim Carrey goes to meet with some, like, authority on the 23 Enigma, and he's kind of talking to him, and he's talking about, you know, the history of it and everything. It's kind of that scene where the central mystery gets explained, you know, like when uh, Richard Gere goes to meet John Keel in the Mothman Prophecies movie, um, and he, you know, says, like, so what is this number? And he looks up, and there's some stained glass, like, uh, over the head of the guy, like, you know, at the window, and he and Jim Carrey just goes god <laughs> like uh <laughs> but then you know the guy points out like well you know two divided by three is 0. 0.6666 no you know so uh, oh my god it, yeah. no I, uh, I, yeah uh, i didn't think about that yeah it's 666 yes. forever eternal yeah 666 um, yeah, there was another poem that I encountered while writing uh, this, which was, it was basically the idea that uh, life was hell, and it was like the ages of man divided by some other number to create a repeating decimal, and it was the idea of like the eternity. Yeah, I forget uh, the exact context. Um, it was interesting, yeah, but I don't think that I took careful notes on, on that. But it, yeah, like uh, the idea of the repeating decimal as uh, like, a, you know, hell or like an eternal like anomaly is, is interesting. But so that uh, came up in the in the number uh, 23. But I actually encountered like uh, when I like looked into that, the only stuff I could really find to do with 23 uh, was like the William Burroughs, Robert Anton Wilson stuff. But I did happen upon some other 23 stuff in uh, an essay about uh, John Donne, who did, like, uh, who was into numerology, uh, you know, the the poet, uh, like, Batter in My Heart, Three-Person God, is one of his famous poems. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and he connected uh, 23 with uh the the sun and he uh the connections he has is uh its association with the vertical structure of the universe the tradition of the harrowing of hell and with the solar ecliptic uh emphasizing connection with the winter solstice and the theme of moral conversion uh it's by kate frost it's called john done the number 23 in the tradition of spiritual autobiography which is in uh it's in the medieval numerology, a book of essays, uh, 1993. Yeah, just another thing about it. Uh, she writes a uh, relative uh, to John Donne. When the number 23 is considered as the sum of its integers, that is 2 plus 5, the resulting number is traditionally associated with the justice and ultimately the hexad and the final judgment. So, hmm. uh, yes, I guess uh, there, Peter Bongo, who gave us one of the few excellent treatises on numbers, represented 23 as a number signifying God's judgment of sinners coupled with his eventual mercy. It signifies, uh, according to Moses, he says, it signifies divine vengeance over sinners. The 23,000 constructing the calf are ordered slain down to the last one by Moses. Paul, writing in Corinthians, refers to the 23,000 dying on a day who defiled themselves with uh, Madianite women. It is possible by this number to represent the fullness of human salvation, and especially that perfection of righteous belief which is maintained by good works. So, uh, yeah, there is some... 23 is good? 
Uh, well, there's different takes on it, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah Like, I the guess. division mm-hmm. obviously results in that, uh, you know, spooky 666, which is hard to deny the, the demonic associations and the dark associations. Contrary of, but, to what... Uh, the... For John Dunn, it was definitely good, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, contrary to what the STEM here. kids say, um, you know, numbers, you know, you might think they're only subject to one interpretation but yes you'd be yeah. wrong <laughs> uh the stem kids would probably say that numbers aren't like inherently good or bad but uh no they're wrong <laughs> um, yeah, like you know yeah. uh, we might not know which ones are good which ones are bad but uh they're definitely one or the other um <laughs> no uh maybe they're both maybe it does depend on the context maybe but they're both anyway. but yeah um i mean i guess story well, it really depends, like, if you believe that numbers are, like, real objects. There's, like, I guess a lot of philosophical difference, you know? There's a the whole idea that, like, uh, platonic forms, you know, do numbers have real existence somewhere out there? Like, did God create all the numbers, you know? Like, uh, did God create 23 and 13? And, like, or, just because God created them, does they, that mean they're good? Because God created human Satan as well, you know? Like, are these yeah. human technologies basically to, like, map onto reality to better manipulate it or understand yeah. it? exactly but they're still fundamentally creations of homo sapiens i mean they you know and i don't know like i mean maybe yes yeah i mean i guess it ultimately would be god's creation if a human being created it i mean human beings can't truly create uh at least in like a monotheistic paradigm they can't yeah yeah like i mean i i uh, like that both religious people and sort of like atheistic uh you know scientific stem people could both make an argument that you know numbers exist independently of mankind yeah um right? oh for sure yeah, yeah like absolutely. they both could make that either it comes from god or it's just like a fact of the universe that we've tapped into um but then on the flip side i guess you could both religious people and atheistic scientific people could say that um they're both created by humans um well that's the, i don't know uh i mean i don't know i don't really know what atheistic scientific people say like uh i mean i feel like one thing about God, at least in, like, well, the, like, sort of, uh, in Islam, like, in, you know, like, uh, Sunni, like, Islam, like, you know, what I, like, know best, like, uh, and I'm sure, like, in Shiism as well, like, uh, and to be fair, probably, like, in lots of uh, religious traditions, probably in Judaism and Christianity as well, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, God is not just, like, the ultimate outside, but also, like, the ultimate inside, like, there's something yes. of God, like, within, you know, he's closer than your own jugular vein, you know, like, I am whatever Mm -hmm. my slave thinks I am, you know, like, uh, so God is not only the ultimate, like, outside, you know, like, above the firmament and everything, but he's also, like, the ultimate inside, so, like, you know, these things are in some way, like, God, I think that, you know, but at the same time doesn't mean that, uh, because God also created Shaitan, and God allowed Shaitan to, like, you know, roam around and do what he does, so... Much like, like how Facebook just... has failed to ban disinfo and Russian disinformatia, uh, God has uh, left the door open for, for like, spiritual I'll, Putin. I'll stop for a lot for comparing God to Facebook. Uh, I don't <laughs> sign that at all. Uh, total, um, total sarcasm. I have not. I, um, I would. Uh, yes. I, uh, I would never. Facebook is Shaitan. Um, it is. It is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, do you want to uh, talk about uh, uh, spiritual warfare technologies uh, to, to close out? Uh, you know, magical we, warfare technologies? We could, technologies? but I, feel, I almost feel like we're right at two hours right now, so maybe... We can maybe hold we, off on magical warfare we, technologies. I think it'll definitely that. come back, but maybe it'll we'll be able yeah, to spend, that can like, be... a real... 
uh, a dedicate or integrate it into a topic that's like yeah fully about that yeah um, that can be a tease for uh the future or you can cut out our discussion about whether to do it but is there anything else we want to get to kind of before we uh we wrap up here yeah i mean if we're right at the two hour mark well, i mean there's like you know you could definitely go on the rabbit hole of 13 or probably like any number uh indefinitely but i think you know i'm i think we've covered a lot of good ground so i feel like you know i'm yeah, ready to yeah. you know we, we dredged uh, up a few things that i think are yeah. good grist for uh for future apps which is always yeah nice. we should try to time it uh so that the episode ends like you know exactly at like you know 13 like two minutes two hours and 13 seconds or something you know? like, <laughs> <laughs> i guess i could do two hours one minute and 30 seconds that's interesting yeah or we could do it so that the digits add up to 13 you know like uh yeah yeah something like that that's possible like one like you know yeah (laughs) well uh well okay um i guess uh it might have to be something that you added it down to (laughs) like but i'll try to to make it work i'll try to make yeah um but uh yeah i think I think we'll we'll leave it there for now and um we'll be back next time on the uh on the patreon war frequency um with an episode about the uh some people who are using magic for for very very bad ends uh, uh yeah in fact actually people who might have some connection to a certain uh digit or figure uh, mention this episode, but uh, we won't say uh, what their name is or anything. We're uh, gonna keep the offset yeah. tight and yeah. Um, uh, don't worry about it. Uh, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry yeah, about don't worry it. about it. Um, yeah, uh, nothing. Just another benign episode about you know, just totally not any kind of scary group. Just like chill, normal episode of us talking about Jason X or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly exactly um Um, yeah yeah so uh so stay tuned for that and uh for the rest of y'all until next time stay vigilant peace and if the terrors of the night come creeping into your days and the world comes Stealing children from your room Guard your innocence From hallucination And know that darkness always Gathers around the light There is a light can always see if there is a world we can always be if there is a dark we shouldn't doubt and there is a light don't let it go out mm. when the wind screams and shouts and the sea And the ship that stole your heart away set sail.